Where are my keys? Anybody see my keys? Who took my keys? new time and a better time to help you start your day with the latest news, interviews, and discussions about the issues that affect New York City and state. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you for being with me this morning. If you're a new listener, then let me tell you just a bit about City Watch. Each week, my co-host David Brand or I bring you conversations with the people who uh, keep our city and state ticking, the movers and shakers, the elected officials, and the policy experts. And we bring you the voices of those who are also shaping how we go about our lives. So we've been fortunate to have guests on who are in government or in education, who care about the environment or our transit system. We've interviewed the leaders of nonprofits and cultural institutions. And as David did a few weeks ago, he focused on sports and the impact of COVID-19 on sports. So as often as we can, we'd like to fill you in on the news of the day. And whenever we need to, we will bring you the breaking news as it happens, uh, just so you can start your day off uh, in, in a positive light. Given the pandemic, both David and I are remote now. I broadcast from here in Jackson Heights uh, with the window closed because I'm right across the street from a very bustling park. Uh, and as I look out right now, I notice that there are a lot of people already filling that park today. Uh, we're incredibly happy, though, to be working with the amazing Sean Rhodes, who is in the studio. He makes it all happen. And I want to give a shout out early on to Sean, uh, who has been so intrepid during this uh, COVID-19 lockdown. He has kept us going. So thank you very much, Sean, for everything that you're doing. Also, Part of our show is Celeste Katz-Marston. She's been part of the WBAI family for several years now. She's headquartered in Boston since she got married and had to head up north. Uh, when COVID-19 began to surge here in the city and across our country, she developed a series of coronavirus diary dispatches. And in them, she interviews people from all walks of life and how they've been affected by the virus. And during the show today, I'll bring you one of those recent interviews that she conducted. So I want to thank you again for tuning in today. And now a little more about uh, some of the topics we're going to discuss today. <clears throat> there is a new report that's out this weekend. And if you get a moment and you can go online to the New York Times at some point, you want to look at or pick up a hard copy of the paper. It's a poll by the New York Times and Siena College, and it finds that nearly six months after the first case of COVID-19 reached our country, most registered voters say that they're anxious, they're exhausted and they're angry. A few of the other key findings. After years of economic growth here in the country, only a third of those who took part in the poll gave our current economy positive marks. I mean, we're all seeing what's going on around us with a significant amount of job losses. According to the Labor Department, uh, it, it's still uh, very heady right now. Also, nearly one in five of these respondents say and this is a troubling fact, say they know someone who has died of the virus. And that includes a third of African-Americans who have been, as you've read reports, who have been disproportionately affected by this virus. And just as troubling, 57% of registered voters believe that the worst of the pandemic is yet to come. And frankly, if you've been watching the news or reading the news this weekend, you see that the cases are now surging in a number of states. Just look at the numbers that have been uh, that have been occurring in Florida this weekend. I had read that there had been, I think, another 9,000 cases that just had been determined just this weekend. It, it's amazing. A few more updates about the pandemic and before we head to our first guest in just a short while. The pandemic hit a milestone today, 10 million cases worldwide and across the globe, 500,000 deaths, according to this. The U.S., by the way, accounts for 25 percent, the quarter 
of the 10 million cases that are worldwide. This is all according to John Hopkins University data. I've been, tr I've been following that over the last few months. They have long tracked the contagion and they have listed, it's just under, I mean, 499,296 deaths worldwide. The US, the United States recorded more than 42,000 cases just as of yesterday. Uh, that's lower than the record 45,255 that were recorded on Friday, but the second straight day that there have been more than 40,000 new cases. Incredibly troubling. I'm sure you've heard about some of the states in addition to Florida. There's Texas, California, Arizona. They're accounting for much of the surge in cases in recent weeks. And if you had not heard, uh, just this past week, governors of three states, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, had announced that there will be a, they want people to quarantine if they're coming in from any of these, uh, these states to New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut for a 14-day period. And the governor uh, of New York, Andrew Cuomo, had said that they would start to assess penalties. I think it's 2,000 to 5,000 to 10,000, depending on the number of uh, violations, if people do not self-quarantine. One of the questions is, what is that monitoring? What is that enforcement going to be like? And how do you track people? You know, it's obvious be able to find names from people who are flying in, but how do you track those who are even driving into the state if they're coming in from these these other states right now? So uh, uh, as we're talking about this, you know, you look at the region and the significant strides that we have made here in New York State and in New York City. So one of my first guests today, she joined me this month last year. So it's a pleasure to have her back here on WBAI. I'm talking about Laura Curran, who was sworn into office as the Nassau County Executive in January of 2018. She is the ninth county executive in the county's history, first woman elected to office, and before that, she was a member of the Nassau County Legislature uh, for several years. She started in public service as a trustee on the Baldwin Board of Education, served as president of that in her final year. And previously, when I had crossed paths with her, she was a reporter at the New York Daily News and also the New York Post and an adjunct professor at SUNY Purchase. Among the issues she's focused on are economic development in the region, mass transit, reigning in the county budget process, it's a different world now, and there are new challenges. So she's been spearheading the county's efforts to bring Nassau County back as it reopens amid the pandemic. Welcome back to WBAI. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. Good morning. Newsday has been reporting on the sharp uh, rise in coronavirus cases around the country, but also uh, noting that the cases have been significantly declining in Nassau County. Can you talk a little about what has happened in recent days? Sure. So it's kind of surreal to see what's going on in the rest of the country because we all remember not so long ago, just a few weeks ago, we were right at the surge ourselves. We didn't know if we would have enough ventilators, enough beds, and healthcare workers were stretched to the max. Well, fast forward, here we are. We have a total of three COVID patients on ventilators in our 11 hospitals here in Nassau County. At our peak, we had over 500. The percentage of people testing positive in our last batch was 0.7% less than 1%, and we're testing about th between three and 5,000 people every day. Also, this decline, we've had 85% decrease in hospitalizations since we started opening in phase one over a month ago. So we are managing reopening, and we're managing it in a way that really does contain the spread. However, as we're seeing what's going on in the rest of the country, I want to make sure that we don't backtrack here. And that, you know, I understand Governor Cuomo's idea about having those who travel from harder hit areas right now to self-quarantine. Um, and I, the other thing I have to say is our residents have been fantastic. Nobody wants to go backwards. Everyone understands that we've got to reopen. Our economy has taken such a hit. But they also understand that we can do it in a safe way. And this particular virus, we're always learning more about it. It's a heavy virus, so the face covering really does work. 90% of the droplets aren't leaving your air, your immediate face area with, with a face mask on. We understand about social distancing. And I think that's what's allowing us to reopen and to reopen safely. 
And you referenced the governor's action. I had mentioned it as well, the people who should be quarantining if they're coming in from hotspot states. I would imagine this is going to be difficult to enforce. How does this, how does this happen in your jurisdiction? Have you heard about any concerns? It is very difficult to enforce. Um, and before the governor announced this self-quarantine, we did have, you know, three of our new of our new positive patients were people who had just come from Florida. So this is this is actually happening. You know, I think we're just asking everyone to use common sense. If you have come from a hard hit area, you know what you have to do. The people who you're with know what to do. Just practice that social distancing. Um, if you have to be out and about, please use the face mask. But by and large, people in Nassau County really are doing that. Um, common sense. I think if we just go with common sense. We don't have to hector. We don't have to. We don't have to lecture. We don't have to penalize. We can go about our lives safely if we just continue using the common sense. And just a few days ago, you entered phase three, where people could return uh, to what indoor seating at restaurants for the first time, I believe. Uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong in any of this. But now you're getting. Uh, nearer to entering phase four on July 8th. Are you satisfied with the pace? What have you agreed with or disagreed with? Yeah, so phase three we've entered. It's indoor dining. It's things like nail salons and tattoos and those kind of personal service things. But, you know, when you start to reopen, the word that starts popping up more than any other is arbitrary. So we can do massages, but we can't have one-on-one -on -one physical personal training yet. You know, maybe that, that, that does seem arbitrary. Something... Um, that I'm concerned about is Nassau County. We have a really great mall culture out here. They're a big part of our economy. And I was actually pushing for malls to be phase two earlier because phase two is in-store retail. I thought that made sense. And, you know, we can do it in a safe way using protocol, social distancing, limiting capacity. Um, but they're in, they were in phase four. Now they were taken out of phase four um, to, to be, you know, some, to be opened at some undetermined time. Um, I'm having good conversations with our partners at the state. We're trying to work through the issues with malls, with things like gyms and movie theaters. Uh, but but the, the concern about malls is, is uh, thousands upon thousands of jobs, right? These malls pay tens of millions of dollars each in property taxes. And if they go under, that will be a huge hit to our economy and, frankly, to the Nassau County budget. I mean, think of what we provide, say, during a pandemic. We've got the health department, the ambulances, social services, the first responders, the police, the corrections officers, people who were, you know, departments that were working on all cylinders throughout the pandemic. Forty percent of our revenue to provide those services comes from sales tax. So we're seeing a real cratering deficit. And, and I, we're, you know, we're working on all different kinds of strategies. We're really hoping that HEROES Act gets done in the state for support for local governments because we want to make sure we're in a position to continue to provide these services. And you're talking about jobs. You know, New York saw jobless, new jobless claims surpass a million for the 14th week, uh, according to the yeah. Labor Department. How do you how do you step in to address this locally as people are struggling to pay their bills, put food on the table? Oh, man, this is really tough. We are doing food distributions where um, we have federal money uh, for COVID expenses that we're, we're partnering with our big food banks, Long Island Cares, Island Harvest, The Inn, and we're doing major food distributions with, uh, you know, thousands of people coming, lining up in their cars, lining up on foot. Um, we've fed, I think, so far about 15,000 families across Nassau County for a week, and we're going to continue. We've got more planned, more planned coming up, and it's hitting every community. Uh, the other thing we did is we were one of the first jurisdictions to not do evictions for non-payment of rent through the pandemic, especially at the beginning when we had to stay home. We couldn't have people being kicked out for not being able to pay their rent. You also talked about taxes, and this is a development that just took place a few days ago with the governor uh, signing an executive order on Thursday that authorized you to be able to push the deadline back on property tax payments. Can you talk a little about that? Sure. So it's no secret in the Nassau County we have very high property taxes. We've got over 300 taxing jurisdictions, 56 school districts, towns, villages, cities. We've got a lot of government here. And we wanted to give people as much breathing room as possible. So the law allows for an extension of three weeks. Uh, asked the governor for that, and he said yes. So that, was, that allowed me to do the executive order just to give our taxpayers some breathing room.
You know, another thing about this pandemic that's been widely reported, and we've certainly seen it here, is a disproportionate impact in our minority communities. Um, we have we have a great healthcare system, but this, the reality is we have had health disparities and outcome disparities based on racial lines and ethnic lines for a long time here in Nassau County. So last year, I hired a health equity director for the health department to just focus on this, Dr. Alt Brutus, and uh, we have a real laser focus on this going forward. What can we do to make sure that there is equal access to health care and trust of health care so that people are in a more level playing field. So we are headed now, later this week, we're headed into the July 4th weekend, and normally we'd see crowded beaches. I would imagine it's going to be a challenge when everyone would normally say it's the holiday weekend, let's head out to the beach, let's head to public spaces. What are some of the steps that the county is going to be taking to uh, enforce social distancing, to make sure that people can remain safe and healthy? I mean, consider what Florida is going through right now. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what's interesting? Um, we found at our beach, we, op- we op- only operate one beach. It's the county beach. The rest are town or private or village or private beach clubs. But we have found, even though we're, the state has limited us to 50% capacity, we're not getting to capacity, even 50% at the beaches. Um, I've been to the beach myself. People are wearing their masks when they're walking around. They are doing social distancing. Uh, we're opening up our pools, our county pools, five of them on July 3rd at 50% capacity. Um, But I guess because we have so much space, we've got lots of parks, they never close, we've got pools, we've got lots of beaches, there's enough room for people to spread out. So that's good news, and I'm happy that people are out. We live on an island, that's why people live here, it's gorgeous, you know, and taking advantage of the weather, taking advantage of the beautiful natural resources that we have here. The other ritual, it's fireworks. I mean, here in Jackson Heights, Queens, I'm hearing the illegal fireworks almost every single <laughs> night. What's been the situation in Nassau County? Because I understand that you also have announced a new tip line. Yeah, and let me tell you, Jeff, it's not just it's not just the city. We are hearing way more than normal of the illegal fireworks going off. In fact, we had a 400% increase in calls for these fireworks year to date from last year. Um, I think people have been cooped up. A lot of the official fireworks Things of uh, shows were, clo- were were canceled or postponed, so people are out there. Um, in fact, we uh, did a demonstration just to show how dangerous these are. I'm, you know, you always hate picking up the paper and reading about kids who've blown off their fingers mm-hmm. or some dreadful thing that's happened. So we we uh, blew up a watermelon with an M80 just to show what happens, and it just you know the thing was demolished, destroyed. Um, so you know. It, if people want to report to us, where the police department is partnering with the Office of Consumer Affairs, it is, oh gosh, I'm blanking on, the, on what it is. You can go on our website, oh. NassauCountyNY.gov, and, and in fact, you can just I, for fireworks. And I wrote down, I have down the email address also. I wanted to make sure I had it to tell the listeners if people want to send, uh, if you're in Nassau County and you've got concerns, send an email to fireworks, that's plural, fireworkssales at nassaucountyny.gov. You are so um, prepared. Thank you. <laughs> I'm a, well, you know, my reporting days. So uh, moving to another serious topic, I mean, here in the city, there's still, uh, you know, what we're seeing in front of City Hall right now, more than 500 people camped out about the budget, concerned about the budget uh, demanding that the police department be defunded. There have been so many protests across the country, including in Nassau County in the wake of the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Uh, you enjoy a good relationship with your police force. How do you balance the needs of the public and the needs of the department at this time? We've had a, well over 125 protests so far in Nassau County. Very few incidences, no intentional property damage. Uh, we have a real culture of community policing here. And, I, I, you know, there was a real, they train for more hours than necessary on de-escalation, on implicit bias. And... We, you know, since I got into office two and a half years ago, we've doubled the number of community affairs officers, excuse me, tripled the number of community affairs officers, tripled the number of what we call POP officers, problem-oriented police, who really work with the community. They go to the meetings. They really interface daily with the community. And uh, I want to continue to build that trust between community and police to keep the community safe and to keep our cops safe. 
So I've started something called PACT. It stands for Police and Community Trust. And it's a, it's a small group of real or protesters, you know, young people, because this is a youth movement. Uh, the commissioner and me and also some of our younger community affairs officers. And, you know, the same age as the protesters, you know, millennials. Uh, and the whole point of this is to get input from different stakeholders and to have a real, frank conversation away from the TV cameras, away from social media sloganeering, to have a real, frank conversation about what are some new ideas that we can build on the trust and 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 continue to build those bridges. And I know we've got just about a minute or two left, and something that's been very important to me prior to the pandemic, but amid the pandemic, I've been stressing it more, has been... Uh, participation in the census. It's incredibly important to participate. Given the concerns over immigration, the fears of people participating, it was already going to be challenging to get an accurate count. What's been the situation in Nassau County and what is your office doing to ensure increased participation? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad that you brought this up. This is so incredibly important. Um, we started a complete count committee getting stakeholders, trusted messengers for the hard-to-count. And we're, we actually have been the fifth hardest-to-count county in New York State uh, for a long time. Um, but I have to say, I think our efforts have paid off. I was very, very proud to see that of all the counties in New York State, we were number one in terms of replies so far. However, I have to say, in our majority-minority communities, it's not the same percentage. It's not the same level. So we've got more work to do. Uh, our Complete Count Committee includes everyone from immigration advocates to labor to business owners to faith leaders to library schools, nonprofits, you name it. And we're just going to keep doing it and letting people know that we send a lot of money to Washington that we don't get back. We want to make sure we get every penny that we're due and make sure that we have enough funding for the really important programs now more than ever that we need to make sure are properly funded. And that starts with making sure everyone knows that they count. And if people want more information on you, on your office, and your resources, where should they go? You can go right to our website, NassauCountyNY.gov, for anything you need uh, information-wise on, on businesses, on reopening, on COVID, what our programs are, what we're doing. That's a, that's a one-stop shopping. Nassau County Executive Laura Curran, thank you so much for joining me here on BAI. Absolutely my pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. So that was Laura Curran, Nassau County Executive, and you've been listening to WBAI 99.5 FM radio and also streaming at WBAI.org live. This is City Watch at our new better time. And I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, this week. My co-host, David Brand, will be with you next Sunday. If you enjoy this or any other programming here on WBAI, I just want to take a few moments and remind you that we are in our fundraising drive right now. So it's a little more specific than just saying give to us to support us. We want to t I want to tell you a little about what we're, you're ra we're raising money to support. We have a transmitter at four times square. And it basically costs about $17,000 a month for us to have that transmitter so we could broadcast to you. We want to stay on the air. We've been on air for 60 years. We've had some challenges, including last fall. We're back and we're stronger than ever. So your contribution will help us to re retain that strength. There are several ways, as our program director, Linda Perry, had mentioned uh, earlier this morning, there are several ways that you can support us. The main way is it's very easy. If you're at home and you're listening right now through, if you're streaming or if you've got your phone, you could just even do something like texting us. Text WBAI to 41444. If this is new to you, it's very easy. You get some prompts on your smartphone and you'll be able to contribute. You can also, you could just call. Pick up the phone and call 516-620-3602. And there's another way. You can go online. Give to, and that's the number two, give to WBAI.org. You can click on buddies. And something Linda mentioned, which is really good, if you, I mean, you, becoming a BAI buddy is very easy because that means you just give a sustaining contribution of $10, $15, or $20 a month. That is fantastic. That's the way I do it. I'm going to keep doing it. But occasionally I find reason to also say, hey, I'm going to just give another contribution. And one way you can do this right now, very timely, and if you're a dedicated listener and you want to show that pride, 
you could get a WBAI face mask for a $35 contribution. And it has the WBAI logo on it. When I heard Linda say this this morning, it reminded me I want to order one myself. So I'll be doing that. $35 contribution. You could easily do that by calling 516-620-3602. That's how you can show your pride. And speaking of pride, this month is LGBTQ Pride Month. And amid the COVID-19 pandemic, many of the pride marches and events that were very public, that had large gatherings, they've been canceled or postponed throughout the country. And I'd been reading this piece in the Times this weekend about what these cancellations mean to people in the LGBTQIA communities who are missing out on an important moment of visibility and acceptance. It's their first pride or would have been their first pride publicly. But this year, given the cancellation of large gatherings that define pride, many people are missing out now on that important moment of visibility and acceptance. I mean, I remember what my first time was like when I attended one years. I mean, how nervous and anxious and yet proud that at the same time that I was to be able to attend the main march that would have been taking place today in Manhattan. And that's before I even started as a reporter covering the march in New York City or then marching in it with groups or with elected officials. There's such a sense of solidarity, of community and empowerment, uh, collective joy and collective remembrance. So. While the Pride March organized by Heritage of Pride today is now going to be virtual, I do want to point out another gathering that you might want to know about, and that's the Queer Liberation March for Black Lives and Against Police Brutality. That will be taking place. That's in person. That's taking place at Foley Square in Manhattan today at 1 o'clock, and that is one that is still going on that a number of my friends have said they're going to be attending. So while there have been so many strides, there also have been setbacks within the community and, and concerns about still access and respect and treatment in the workplace. Our correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston, has chronicled the lives of New Yorkers affected by the pandemic. And in today's segment, she speaks with one gay man who lives in Manhattan about the challenges that he faced when he was turned away when he tried to donate plasma after recovering from COVID-19. Let's play that segment. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's coronavirus diary. My name is Alex. I am originally from Israel. I moved here to New York two years ago, and I work for a big tech company doing uh, sales I was one of the first few people to get sick and I was at home in bed for a week. And when once I recovered, I was contacted by a big medical provider here in New York uh, to come and donate plasma for those who uh, are having a bad time recovering from uh, COVID-19. So I applied online uh, to do so. That's how it all started getting interesting from that perspective. When I filled all those forms uh, online, they ask you all sorts of questions about who you are, where you're from, your age, everything. And I specifically told them that I'm married to a man and that I'm not a U.S. citizen. And they called me to come and donate anyway. And I asked them over the phone if all of my information was okay for me to donate because I was aware that sometimes gay men uh, were not allowed to donate blood. Uh, so I was just making sure that everything was fine. But once I got there, I asked the nurse to make sure that I could donate because I just don't didn't want to have my donation go to waste. Like sometimes they just take our blood donations and throw them to the trash. So they called the head of the program to come over. And she essentially told me that the hospital, like all the hospitals in the city are subordinates to an FDA regulation that doesn't allow for gay men. It doesn't matter who you are, who have had sex with another man uh, in the last 12 months to donate either blood, plasma or anything. So essentially, they called, they called me to come over, and then they just sent me back home because of my sexual identity. It was very humiliating, essentially, because I all I wanted to do is to give my part and try to help others uh, recover from this horrible thing. And it's uh, it was really just a reminder of how bad things can still be for minorities and people like myself. I'm an immigrant. I'm a gay man, and I'm very sensitive to to how society nowadays. Uh, just has not only not gone forward and improved things for us, they, it, it's actually going backwards. Uh, so it was painful. 
a few days before that, one of my neighbors, a 75-year-old woman, was like, we needed to take her out of her apartment and and walk her out to the ambulance. And uh, like, we hear all the time about people dying. There's hundreds of people who die in the city every day. And I just wanted to do my part. And it's very frustrating uh, that I am not seen, I, I'm not seen as um, pure enough or clean enough just because I'm gay. And they, they don't know what my sexual history is. They don't know what my health history is. As a married person, I'm probably way safer and a lot of other heterosexual people would be to donate and they are allowed to donate, but I'm not just because I married a man. I, I don't have words to describe exactly how I felt. It was awful. Having posted about this on social media, all of my friends that reached out to me, people that were completely unaware that that's still the situation in 2020 in America and all over the world. It was a very empowering feeling having people be empathetic to what happened and, and being surprised that that's still the case. Uh, but more than that, uh, it has empowered me to go out and find other ways to help my community. Uh, I've been seeing a, a surge in people wanting to help each other. And even here in, in Manhattan, where I live in my building, people are helping the more vulnerable population of the building go and get their groceries or do whatever is needed to help each other out. Uh, so it's really nice to see Americans being more community oriented and more family oriented and actually caring for each other. It's, a, it's such an individualistic society that we live in, and it's a nice change. Alex Aronovich lives in Manhattan. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. the LGBTQ Pride Day in New York. Tune in to WBAI from 1 to 3 p.m. for Out FM special coverage of the Pride March focused on the Black community. We'll be talking with organizers of this year's Queer Liberation March for Black Lives and against police brutality. We'll bring you a stunning interview with longtime Black Panther, self-identified lesbian Erica Huggins. We'll also address the Black LGBTQ movement today focused on the murders of Black transgender folks, especially women. Sunday, June 28th from 1 to 3 p.m. for Out FM's Pride Special on WBAI at 99.5 FM and at WBAI.org. And you are listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, just in case you uh, did not catch all of that promo, the Queer Liberation March for Black Lives and Against Police Brutality takes place at Foley Square at 1 o'clock today. And I'm, I'm glad uh, when I was listening to that that they talked about the impact on the trans community because late last week uh, or going into this weekend, it was announced that 17 here in New York City, 17 Uniform Correction Department staffers are going to face disciplinary action in the death at Rikers Island of a transgender woman, a 27-year-old Afro-Latinx woman who died from an epileptic seizure back in June 2019. Her name was Leilene Polanco. She'd been in solitary confinement at the time. And the mayor, Bill de Blasio, had said that three officers and a captain were suspended without pay. That's after an internal investigation by the City Department of Corrections. He called this an incredibly painful moment. So I am sure that is going to be one of the key things that's discussed today at that event that's going on in Foley Square at one o'clock. So in the second half hour, in a few moments, we're gonna be able to talk to one of the first guests I ever had on this show when I started co-hosting about two years ago, uh, New York City Council member Jimmy Van Bramer. He has been part of the uh, budget negotiating committee. He's the deputy leader of the city council. Uh, and uh, being part of the budget negotiating team, rather, uh, he is obviously one of the folks who've been discussing all of these calls to defund the police and what that's going to mean for the budget that usually 
is supposed to, well, it's supposed to be uh, inked before we start the new fiscal year, which starts uh, this Wednesday, July 1st. So I was just checking uh, some of the news reports, had not seen about any developments that have taken place yet over this weekend. We'll be able to ask him about it. But if you are not familiar with the different calls to defund the police and, or the specifics of it, there's you know kind of three different uh, uh, lines of thinking here. Uh, New York City Council and the mayor, as they are discussing this and where to look for cuts in this budget to fill uh, to meet that deficit that they're facing, uh, the the call has been specifically to. Uh, look at how the city spends its $6 billion on the NYPD. And there was this great breakdown in, in the New York Times a few days ago, just looking at where all those expenses are. I mean, overall, one of the biggest chunks is $1.5 billion just on the patrol unit, uh, more than $800 million on the chief of department, another $745 million in the detective bureau, and administration was just $727 million. But there, there are questions about whether when in defunding the police, where to shift some of those expenses. For instance, should school safety still be the domain of the police department? I remember when I first started as a reporter covering education here in the city, school safety was not under the wing of the police department. That now costs about $319 million. What about the housing bureau? Should that be under the police department? New York City's controller, Scott Stringer, who was a guest of mine last week on uh, on Driving Forces on Thursdays, talked a little about his vision for how we can pair the, the budget of the police department. And that includes suspending the hiring of new cops. That would save $112 million possibly cutting overtime by by 5%, saving another 26 million. The council wants a $1 billion cut. And this would include shifting responsibilities away from the police department, again, reducing the number of uniform cops, the number being floated is 2,000, 2000 uh, cops. Also, that would save about 5% of the costs by suspending new hiring. Now, advocates, including many of those, the 500 people uh, who've been camped outside of City Hall, you should look online and see the amazing pictures of the people who are camped outside of City Hall sending a direct message to the mayor and council. They want a $1 billion cut, and that includes Again, shifting responsibilities away from the police department, reducing the number of uniform cops, and, and saving a, a good percentage of the costs by suspending new hiring. There are some of the more specific things that they're saying. For instance, again, remove cops from the schools, remove them from the transit system. Also, why should they be involved in homeless outreach and mental health response programs? These are the, the ideas that advocates have been proposing. Just some of those bring together a $96 million uh, a cut right there. Again, the budget for this new fiscal year starts this Wednesday. And it is supposed to be cemented by this Tuesday. So we will see if that happens. And we're going to discuss some of this with the next guest, New York City Council member, Jimmy Van Bramer. Again, who was one of my first guests back when I started co-hosting. One of the reasons was because we were talking about uh, Pride Month at that time. And he is now the uh, deputy leader of the New York City Council. He'd been reappointed by the city council speaker, Corey Johnson, to the budget negotiating team. And that is the team that plays an integral role in formulating the city's budget. And obviously there are a lot of tough decisions that the council and the mayor are gonna have to make right now, not just involving the NYPD, but about whether to uh, sustain the level of funding for vital programs, uh, think of the debate that has gone on the last few months just after the mayor talked about cutting the summer youth employment programming. I mean, we have started summer. The teenagers that I know in our area are also sitting here saying, how am I going to find work right now? We've talked about the high unemployment rate uh, that New York City and state have been facing. So in a few moments, we'll bring on Jimmy Van Bramer to talk about the budget process, but also how his district is doing as New York City continues to reopen. Sean, do we have Jimmy on the line yet? Great. So with that, I'm, I'm happy to bring back to the show New York City Council member Jimmy Van Bramer. Welcome back. Thank you for having me again, Jeff. So 
let's start with the pandemic and the recovery because you know here in Jackson Heights, I mean you're my neighboring na- uh, neighborhood. Uh, I've noticed that a lot of people are outside now, crowded into the park. I'm seeing spotty use of masks. I'm, you know, I'm very judgmental when I'm watching people gather without masks right now. Uh, when we talk about how the city and the state have handled the recovery and the reopening process, do you agree with how it's being rolled out? Well, look, I mean, I think it's very clear, but both the governor and the mayor made some very significant and early missteps in shutting things down too late and delaying uh, some of the measures that could have uh, saved uh, lots of lives. Uh, I understand that both were faced with uh, something they never thought they'd deal with in their lifetime. But uh, I think that clearly the numbers indicate that the situation is at least under control, and the numbers continue to be at a very manageable level. And so I I think the phase one reopening uh, went well. I think the phase two reopening, obviously, we still have to assess that. Um, And I have some concerns about uh, the phase three reopening, as other uh, elected have done, because like you, I see still uh, far too many people not wearing masks, far too many people uh, not social distancing in my district. And I have actually gone to a couple of uh, restaurants in Sunnyside uh, this past week to uh, outdoor dine and show some support for our local small businesses. And uh, they are all seemingly doing incredibly well. There's a great thirst for people to get back to normal and get back to life as they they used to experience it. But I think we have to do it very cautiously and very slowly. And one thing that I am concerned about, uh, and I've been a huge champion of outdoor dining in our small businesses and, and our local restaurants, uh, I, I share the trepidation about indoor dining um, and uh, want us to make sure that before we go ahead and put people in uh indoors, confined spaces for hours at a time without masks, that we know exactly what we're doing, and we know that's not going to lead to a rise in cases. So, um, you know, I I think that most people are still being cautious. Most people are still doing what they need to do, uh, but we've all seen it in our neighborhoods, in every neighborhood. You know, there are just so many people who refuse to wear a mask. I take care of, as you know, Jeff, my 80-year-old mother. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we went to the Key Food on 30th Avenue in Astoria. And we both had our masks on. And I walked in, and there was this uh, six-foot-five tall man standing right in front of us without a mask on and inside the Key Food. And I just looked at him, and I said, would you put your damn mask on for her? And uh, he did. Um, But, uh, you know, overall, I think we're trending in the right direction, but we can't go back to where we were. And so we've got to do it extremely cautiously. And I am I am a little concerned about indoor dining. I will say that. And I'm glad you said that because I just watched the viral video this weekend that took place out of state at the Trader Joe's with the woman who was uh, incredibly angry that people told her to put on a mask. I mean, I'm being very judgmental here, but in a way, I'm glad when people are being shamed, when they're refusing to put on masks, when they're in large gatherings, because it's about not just themselves, but about the people around them. In talking about business, by the way, I'm glad you talked about restaurants. The Queen's Chamber of Commerce estimated that in Queens alone, we could see thousands of businesses that may never see the light of day again. What are you hearing from the businesses that you've been talking with in your district? Well, sadly, we've uh, already had a few that have announced that they will never reopen. Dutch Kill Central was a a wonderful restaurant and and pub uh, in the Dutch Kill section of Long Island City, and uh, they have announced that they will not be reopening a few others. We've got many of our local small businesses that have already reopened, um, but there are a few that have not, and I'm concerned that they may have not may not have made an announcement yet, but they may not ever be reopening. But uh, you know, they're all hurting. 
they're all desperate to survive uh, this summer. And, and that's and it, why we've got to do everything we possibly can to give them the resources and the tools, which is why I'm a huge supporter of, of the outdoor dining, which includes curbside uh, uh, dining and, and the taking of parking spots so that restaurants can expand safely their outdoor seating capacity. Um, and, and that's the wave of the future and should be the wave of the future, the way we look at streets, the way we look at uh, the use of uh, public space, publicly owned space, which includes streets and curbside parking. So uh, I introduced your uh, interview by talking about you being part of the city council's budget negotiations negotiating team. Where do we stand now? We're only, a, you know, what, two more days from now, we're supposed to be having a budget. Where do we stand? How close are we to getting a handshake deal? <laughs> so, um, so we have been on uh, six, seven, eight-hour uh, budget negotiating team meetings for the last several days, um, and uh, we will be uh, meeting at length again today. So uh, it is difficult. Um, there's been some progress. I will say I think the mayor's office uh, has not been – uh, as responsive as we would like. I think they have been very reticent to uh, come up to a real $1 billion uh, cut for the NYPD. And and I think there's still substantial disagreement. So we are very much uh, coming down to the wire. Uh, some would say we're already there. Uh, we'll see if there's progress made today. But I am one of those council members uh, who very early, uh, in fact, an activist put it up on Instagram yesterday, it was June 3rd, that I said that I wouldn't vote for a budget uh, that didn't have uh, these meaningful uh, cuts to the NYPD's budget. And that means at least $1 billion uh, in real cuts. So uh, I think there's still a lot unknown. Obviously, there's a lot that I, I can't reveal as part of the budget negotiating team. But I think the mayor has a long way to go to meet the council's demands. And uh, and I'm not sure we get there. Um, but uh, but there there's still time. Obviously, there's a, a lengthy session uh, today planned. And uh, hopefully the mayor comes around to understanding that what we must do in this city is reimagine public safety, uh, drastically reduce the budget to the NYPD, reinvest that funding in um, core social services, safety net programs, communities of color. Now, look, I include uh, libraries and cultural uh, programming in those things. I see a lot of... Uh, incoming from, from activists who talk a lot about uh, so many of the important programs that are vital. Uh, I wish more were to talk about public libraries and, and the arts, but uh, having said that, you know, I'm, I too am anxious to see how the next uh, 12 hours unfold because I think we're going to know uh, uh, just about everything that we need to know in the next 12 hours. And uh, we've got to, if we're going to adopt a budget on Tuesday, we, we, we essentially need to come to an agreement uh, uh, late today or early tomorrow um, to be able to put the mechanics in work to be able to uh, take that vote. Um, but, you know, I think uh, the council has been strong, pushed back hard, continues to push back hard. Uh, I think the speaker's pushing back hard. And, um, you know, it's a lot of intrigue, a lot of battles, uh, a lot of... Uh, honest and, and intense discussion amongst the, uh, I think, 19 members of the budget negotiating team itself, and, uh, uh, and of course, faced with a $10 billion budget deficit, uh, we're faced with a lot of really difficult decisions, a lot of really painful, painful uh, decisions about whether or not uh, this should be cut or that should be cut, how much, uh, that, that uh area could sustain but you know if we if we were to cut the nypd budget more we'd be faced with fewer of those painful cut discussions 
uh, and 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 uh, obviously, you know, we as a city have a relatively little power. But if we were actually talking about taxing the rich uh, and actually getting more revenue into uh, the city by making uh, billionaires pay their fair share, we wouldn't be having discussions about cuts at all. So, you know, we've got to fundamentally reimagine how we uh, do policing and public safety, but we've also got to fundamentally uh, reimagine how we do budget and and how much of the budget uh, falls on the poor and the working class and, and how, you know, millionaires and billionaires at the end of the day, always seem to skate and walk free. So we've got just a few minutes left, and one of the reasons I was really happy that you could do the show today is today is normally a day where you or I would be out participating in one of the marches. For many people, for many younger gay men and women and trans, this might be a you know in the without the pandemic would have been the first time they would have attended. Uh, you know, a big public gathering like that. What goes through your mind on a day like today when many of those activities are now virtual versus you know, in person? Well, you know, it's, it's obviously a mix of emotions. It, it's uh, the 50th anniversary of the first March, and I know Reclaim Pride uh, will come through with a very large and very powerful uh, march today. Uh, rightly focused on on Black Lives Matter uh, and Black uh, uh, trans lives mattering, and so I'm I'm thrilled for that. And young people can and should, uh, if they uh, feel safe, uh, participate in in the Reclaim Pride uh, march and activities today. But I but I this whole month has been just surreal for so many reasons, and one of them is that that. Uh, so many of the things that we normally look forward to and for, if I may include you, Jeff, in, in uh, the slightly older gay uh, queer <laughs> yes. uh, generation like us, you know, that first Pride Parade uh, was something I'll never forget, right? It was a magical moment. It was a moment where you literally were set free because you were, for the first time in your life, not the only person in your class or in your family or in whatever group you were in that was different, but instead you were just surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people who were just like you, that very uh, act frees you and makes you much more powerful. And I am sorry for all the young queer people uh, for whom this day might have been that day, uh, but I also know that a lot of young queer people have been marching in all these Black Lives Matter uh, marches and finding strength and solidarity uh, in those marches. Um, so the, the power of pride is still there. All of us feel it, and uh, it is different, no doubt. But uh, I'm hoping that today uh, uh, the LGBT community queer people um, will march and reclaim pride and will lift their voices and and spend some part of the day, whether it's uh, slightly uh, middle-aged uh, uh, folks like ourselves or much older or the very uh, uh, new first-timers uh, thinking about our journey from being that closeted queer kid who felt alone and powerless uh, to being part of a really powerful community that has made enormous change in the world and that also recognizes our responsibility, uh, particularly those of us to enjoy, um, uh, without any uh, work done, white privilege, to leverage our power to support these movements uh, that are all about ending systemic uh, uh, racial uh, injustice, uh, structural racism, and, you know, as a queer man who's on the budget negotiating team, you know, that's what I intend to do on this Pride Sunday as we probably come to a close in some ways in the budget negotiation to say, as this queer, queer white man, I want to make sure that we are meeting the moment here and, and making sure that we have a real over $1 billion cut to the NYPD budget and that we re- reimagine how we do uh, uh, public safety and budget 
and we change the world um, and and make it a better place. Um, that's our responsibility and our obligation. So uh, it, it's a different pride, um, and it, you know, happy pride is it's okay to say that, but it's more like have a meaningful pride and have an, and have a, a forceful pride and have like a, a pride full of activism and change and like meet the moment and get out there and march with reclaim pride and fight for Black Lives um, and and trans uh, people. That's what we can do today to actually be um, queer activists that we were all born to be. And on that note, New York City Council Member Jimmy Van Bramer, I want to thank you for appearing here on WBAI today. Thank you, Jeff. So I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in this morning. In my final minute, just want to give a few quick shout outs. Thank you so much to Sean Rhodes for another flawless performance uh, today, making sure the show happens. I also want to thank Jimmy Van Bramer for taking some time today to be on the show. And also Nassau County Executive Laura Curran, who talked in the first half of the show about how the pandemic has impacted her area. My co-host, David Brand, will be with you next week at 10 a.m. on Sunday. And I'm going to be back this Thursday with Driving Forces. So I would like to, on behalf of WBAI, wish you a wonderful close to the weekend. Have a great day. Pride Day in New York. Tune in to WBAI from 1 to 3 p.m. for Out FM special coverage of the Pride March focused on the Black community. We'll be talking with organizers of this year's Queer Liberation March for Black Lives and against police brutality. We'll bring you a stunning interview with longtime Black Panther, self-identified lesbian Erica Huggins. We'll also address the Black LGBTQ movement today, focused on the murders of Black transgender folks, especially women. Sunday, June 28th from 1 to 3 p.m. for Out FM's Pride Special on WBAI at 99.5 FM at WBAI.org. Amid the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo issued this executive order. All people in public must have a mask or nose covering, mouth and nose covering, and they must wear it in a situation where you cannot or are not maintaining social distancing. Governor Cuomo on continuing to stop the spread of the coronavirus and WBAI in the beginning of its spring fund drive to raise money for this listener-sponsored station to keep it going. We've created face masks with our own logo and a message that reads, keep free speech radio alive. You can get a face mask in white or black by donating $35. You become a listener sponsor, a member of WBAI for a full year, and you can choose the face mask in white or black. WBAI has created these face masks for you and as a way to keep this radio station afloat. $35 contribution, 516-620-3602. Say you want a WBAI face mask in white or black. It has a saying that reads, keep free speech radio alive. You'd be helping us to keep WBAI and free speech radio alive. 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org and select the WBAI logo face mask in white or black.
$35. You're a member of WBAI for a full year, and you're supporting this radio station. You're helping to keep our essential workers working, and you're helping WBAI pay the bills in the beginning of our fund drive, our May fund drive. We know how difficult it is, how hard it is for many people. If you can afford it, please become a member of WBAI for $35 a year and select the face mask as a gift to you. Thank you so much. Once every 10 years, America mounts a census and attempts to count every single person living in the country, citizens and non-citizens, immigrants, documented and undocumented alike. This is an extremely difficult goal, even under ideal circumstances. And even as the actions of the current U.S. government has created fear and uncertainty that all but ensures that many immigrants will stay in the shadows, too terrified to risk contact with any governmental official, census takers included. However, by law, namely Title 13 of the U.S. Code, the Census Bureau cannot release any information about you, your business, or your immigration status to law enforcement. So step out of the shadows, stand up and be counted. This is a public service of WBAI Community Outreach.